This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is out of the Gospel of John, chapter 15, starting in verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. That can be found on page 902 of the Bibles in the pews in front of you or under your seats. Again, that's John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all of these things that you to, to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Hey, good morning. Let's uh, pray. We'll get into this together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. (laughs) Absolutely true. Absolutely true. God, would you um, speak to us this morning? Would you speak to us this morning? I ask that you would give us a spirit of revelation as we hear from your word. As we... Sit under your word. God, would you conform us? Would you comfort us? Would you confront us? Would you shape us? God, I ask that you would um, glorify Jesus in our midst. And even as this word says, Spirit of God, I ask that you would come and bear witness to Jesus in our midst. You do the work. Would you come and do your work? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. And so I don't know what you uh, 
felt as you heard this word read? I mean, it can be kind of a tough word to hear, tough word to swallow. It's a hard word. It's a sobering word. Um, but I want to just name before we dive into it. I, I have one hope for us this morning. My hope for us in our time in the text is that we would be encouraged by the Lord this morning to a life of fidelity to Jesus. That's it. I want us to be faithful to Jesus, faithful to his person, faithful to his word, faithful to his gospel, no matter what it costs. We as a church exist for that purpose, to bring glory to God by standing in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ in the midst of a world giving witness to his glory, his grace, his goodness, his gospel in the midst of a world that is sinful and broken and dark. And I want us by, by the spirit this morning, as we walk through the word, my prayer for us is that we again would be encouraged to and exhorted to and reminded to fidelity to Jesus over everything no matter what that means. So what I want to do this morning to walk through our text is to shape the context of John 15 for us just a little bit. And then I'm going to look at three things, three realities that we see happen in this text. And I think it is a really important text for us in the moment we find ourselves in. The first thing we'll look at is the hatred of the world. Jesus lays out this theological idea for his disciples to help shape what their experience is going to be when he leaves them and they become the ambassadors of his mission into the world. They're going to experience certain types of opposition and certain types of hardship as they proclaim his truth to the world. And he wants to rightly shape and rightly orient how they make sense of that. So we're going to look at Jesus's statements that there will be this opposition or hatred from the world. Then we're going to look at why does Jesus tell them this? It's profoundly merciful of him. It's profoundly gracious of him. He takes the theological reality and then he begins to teach his disciples, this is what that's going to look like in the reality of your life. And this is why I'm telling you these words. And then the last thing that we're going to look is sandwiched between those two realities, the theological, you could say, and then the actual or the practical is this beautiful promise that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send his helper to be with them in the midst of this. So throughout John 15, just a little contextual framework for us. Jesus has, we've seen spoken of the disciples' intimate union with Christ Jesus. Those who follow him have been called to abide in him like branches are joined to the vine. And therefore, because of this, they'll bear fruit in the world. The life of union with Jesus is a glorious teaching that we've seen is meant to provide security and confidence to us as we walk after him in, the, in this world. Now, to abide in Christ, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks or as a reminder to you, is simply to say to remain in faithful, trusting obedience to him. 
That's what it means to abide in Jesus, to rest our faith in him alone as the source of salvation and security and life, and to abide in his word, which means to keep his commandments or to seek to obey him in trusting obedience. We see that this type of life sustained by faith in Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit results in the fruits of righteousness that bring glory to God and bring joy to the follower of Jesus. However, what Jesus is going to get at here in this section is although life in participating union with him has glorious and beautiful realities, there are also going to be profound difficulties. The truth of the gospel of Jesus, we have to understand, as we'll get to here, is a profound confrontation to a sinful world. It is an invitation to a sinful world, but first it stands as a confrontation to a rebellious, sinful world who has set themselves in opposition to God. And because of that, those who are joined to Jesus and who have now become stewards of his mission in the world will experience opposition as they walk in this world. This section is intended to rightly orient and interpret a life of fidelity to Christ and to Christ's mission. These words are given by him to strengthen our hearts as we seek to correctly interpret places where our fidelity to him results in apparent failure coming in the form of opposition. This is really important. Jesus wants us to know from the jump that obedience to him does not just mean always success. Or success in the eyes of God doesn't mean everything gets easier, everything gets better, everybody believes, every, everybody receives the truth, everybody comes in to agreement with that and follows him just like he has called us to. If that is our picture of success, we will be profoundly disoriented when we experience the reality of the world. And so Jesus wants to give us these words to comfort us, to strengthen us, to stabilize us. And the beautiful thing is that he doesn't leave us grasping to make sense of why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. Rather, he gives them in his tenderness, in his grace, ideas or understanding of why they're experiencing and why we experience difficulty so that our hearts are not overcome with trouble. So let's begin by looking at this, the theological idea, so to speak. This is in verses 18 to 25. Jesus begins with this idea that his people, the people who are joined to him, the people who have been given this mission to partner with him in proclaiming his gospel to the ends of the earth, they will experience opposition, hostility, hatred in this world. Jesus here is seeking to rightly orient the expectations and the experience of his disciples. 
as he prepares them for the days that are coming, right? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to experience profound suffering and uh, hardship in his own personal vocation and mission. But he, in the coming days, is about to leave them and hand over to them the responsibility to take the good news of his gospel to the ends of the earth. And he will no longer be with them in his uh, physical presence. And so he's giving them the right ways to understand and shape their expectations in the midst of this. He's attempting to reorient their expectation of what success looks like as they walk in his ministry of reconciliation through the world. Jesus had taught this kind of reality to his disciples throughout his entire ministry. If you go to Matthew's gospel, almost from the jump, when Jesus starts his teaching ministry, opposition, hardship, hatred, persecution, reviling, insults, is a normative mark of his community. The people who follow him. Look at Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So from the jump of Jesus' ministry, as he begins to teach his disciples, way before they ever experience this reality, he starts to shape their imagination that the norm of their ministry is going to be marked by times of persecution, opposition, reviling, insults that are slandered against them falsely. This is going to be the normative experience of those who are in his community, his followers, his people. Now, what I want us to see here as we begin this, Jesus starts this section and he says, if the world hates you, right? So we need to ask the question, what is the world? What's the world here? In the Gospel of John, the world is shorthand for something. John uses the concept of the world as a very specific idea. He's not just talking about the globe or like the earth that we live on. What he's talking about is a realm in which people live. It's the moral order described to encompass humanity in its sinfulness. It's not speaking about the created area we live, but rather the realm of sinful humanity set against God in rebellion. So this is, this is a shorthand definition for the values, the practices, the desires, the pursuits of any and all who are in sinful rebellion against God. That's what the world is shorthand for in the Gospel of John. So what Jesus does in this section is he orients the opposition that the disciples are going to face through a series of if-then statements. Generally, you could break these into four categories. I want to look at these four. I think they're important for us to lay the framework for how to understand our experience as we seek to be faithful ambassadors to Jesus by proclaiming his gospel to the world. I'm on the top of page two if you're following along. 
the four categories that Jesus lays out for them are this. Number one, if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, they are to know something. They're to know that the world hated Jesus first. Now, this is, John's picking this up from other things he's done throughout his gospel. Jesus had come into the world. He made the world. He set the world into its its order. He fashioned it and formed it. He created people to live in communion with him and in fellowship with him. And John 1 says, he who is the light came into the world that he made and the world didn't even know him. It didn't recognize him. It didn't see him. And further than that, the people that he created for himself in his image to live in relationship with him, he came to them and they rejected him. This is the reality that Jesus is saying here. He's demonstrating to his disciples, if you are joined to me and you live as faithful ambassadors to my gospel in the world, you will experience opposition. The world will hate you. But when you experience that, know something. They hated me first. They hated me first. This is what Jesus is laying out here. Look at John 3 with me. This is verse 19. This comes just on the heels of what is likely the most famous Bible passage Uh, in all of history, right? Like John 3, 16. Right on the back half of this, Jesus begins to demonstrate this is the judgment. There is a judgment that comes to humanity. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already living in a state of condemnation. Why? Because the light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than they loved the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus sets out a first category of thinking. If you experience hatred in the world because of your union with me and because of the declaration of my good news, know something. They hated me first is what Jesus lays out. That's the first thing we need to see. The second thing he says is that if the disciples experience hatred in the world, it's only because they do not belong to the world. Look at that in verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world. So he sets up this contrast here. He says, the reason that you experience opposition is because you're not of the world. The world loves its own. The world loves those who are running after the values and the practices and the pursuits that they have gathered under. They love their own. So if you experience opposition, hardship, reviling, insults. No, it's only because you are no longer of the world. You have been, I love that Jesus says here, chosen out of the world. Now I want to stop here for a second because this one, this one's been really messing with me this week Uh, for, for a bunch of reasons. 
But this one, as I've prayed and meditated and kind of like dug in, this one is really, uh, has been confronting me in the best possible way and in ways that I'm like, okay, Lord, uh, I need some help here. Um, We were given, and I say we, I mean like the church in our cultural moment. We were given a framework of what I would call missional engagement that I wonder when we come to texts like this, if we, we find ourselves practicing something functionally that is outside of what God has for his people. And what I mean by that is this. I think there are two ditches you can fall into in how we engage the world. One ditch, I don't think we probably, many of us in this, uh, in this room struggle with, is the like, we are just unashamedly offensive, right? Like we just go after the thing. We're like, if I'm going to stick my finger in your eye, I might as well stick in four, right? Like type of a deal. Um, if, if this message is oppositional or it's confrontational, I might as well just turn up the volume and stand on the corner and do the deal. I don't think a lot of us struggle with that one. I think the one that we struggle with is if you turn it all the way to the other side, we have this subtle idea that if we are kind enough or neighborly enough or nice enough or cool enough or, man, I just live just like you except I have this hope that you don't have. And I'm hoping that one day you'll look at me and think, man, your life is just so different than mine. Why are you so different? You do all the same things I do. You just have a smile more often than not. The problem is, and what I think the the thing that I've felt confronted with here is, we cannot seek to bring a message to the world by seeking to get the world to love us and then like bait and switch them or something, right? We have to give clear, specific, explicit proclamation of Jesus's truth, and that will be opposed to the values, the practices, the pursuits of a broken and dying world. Now, it's an invitation. It's done in love. We seek to do it with humility and grace and tenderness, but it does require us to speak it and say it and go... um, Take the initiative to do so. You know, I think we, we oftentimes have, uh, you've, you may have heard the, the um, it's like apocryphal. I don't think that he actually said it. You know, people say St. Francis or somebody like that said, uh, always preach the gospel, use words when necessary. The problem is you have to use words to preach the gospel. The gospel is a message The gospel is a declaration. It is good news that is spoken and communicated and proclaimed. It isn't just the way I live my life. I got a survey in the mail this week. 
in our in our neighborhood association newsletter. There's a church in our neighborhood. I've actually never heard of the church before. I don't know where it is, but they, they had this card in it. And on the card's a QR code. They're like, hey, help us. We're going into the new season of the life of our church. And we want to do, we want to figure out what kind of church we want to be moving forward. And so they've got this QR code for this neighborhood survey. I click it and it pops up and it's got like four or five questions. Hey, what, what do you see as the major challenges of your neighborhood? What do you see as the beautiful things going on in your neighborhood? This and this and this. And the last one, they said, what kind of church do you think this neighborhood most needs? And I literally just put one that preaches the gospel. Because what I find in my own life and what I find in, in, in the church in our moment is we have this idea that if we just get in and look sort of like and do good things and smile and we're kind and we're neighborly or whatever those things are, that will be enough. But it won't be. It actually will not be. What we need as the people of God, the thing that sets us apart in our world is that we have a message of hope. We have a message that God has broken into the world and done something about our need for salvation. That is what we have. And if we don't get to that, we're not serving. We're not ultimately um, seeking the transformation and the life of those around us. So Jesus says, don't be subtly lulled into a life that may try to like win over the love of the world. The world will not love you. It loves its own. You can still love the world. You can still love those in the world by pouring your life out like our Savior did. But do not be lulled into a way of, man, if I just, if I just got a little more clout here, it would go over better. We have a message. We have to proclaim it. Now, I, I want us to see something in this before we move on to the third one. This truth is not intended to make you boast. Look at, look at verse 19 again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and right there you might be tempted to go, yeah, that's right, I'm not of the world. That's right. Whew. I, look at how well I'm doing. What's the next sentence? I chose you out of the world. How did you get out of the world? You got plucked. You got chosen. You got picked out. Nothing that you had, nothing that you brought, nothing that you merited. God in his favor and in his kindness came and plucked you out. So this isn't like some truth for us to become proud about or boast in. It's a truth that's meant to make us humble as we understand how we're walking through the world and the opposition we experience. So that's the second one. The third one, Jesus talks about if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, it's only because servants are not greater than their masters. 
What he says here is he says, hey, remember, I've told you this statement before and I've used it to highlight different realities. But Jesus is saying, remember, a servant is not greater than their master. So if the master experienced something, the servants must understand that their experience will be the same. And he's used this other times, right? So Jesus is reminding them, hey, I've said this to you over and over again. The servant isn't greater than their master. If the master experienced hatred and opposition in the world, so will the servants. He's used that earlier to talk to them about their call to love earlier in John 13. And he's also used it in Matthew 10 to talk about the reality that they will be slandered and reviled. In Matthew 10, it's crazy. Jesus says to them, hey, I want you to know something. If God in the flesh came and when he walked among people, they called him the devil. What do you think your, your reality will be like? The spotless, sinless, matchless, eternal second person of the Trinity took on flesh, walked in the world, manifested his kingdom in the world, and they said, that's the devil. That's literally what's going on in Matthew 10. And he says, the servant is not greater than the master. If they called the master Beelzebul, what do you think is going to happen when you are the torchbearers of the mission in the world? He's shaping their expectations, framing how they see things. The fourth is the disciples, if they experience hatred in the world, it ultimately demonstrates that the world does not know God. This is the longest uh, argument that Jesus makes in, in these verses. Essentially what he's saying is this. If the light came into the world and people rejected the light, what that does, if my words and my works do nothing but show the Father... If people hate them, it's demonstration that they hate God. That's what's going on here. It's an evidence of what's real in their souls. It is this rebellion, this hatred, this sin that they are turned against God. And so when I show up and do the works of God and proclaim the words of God, they reject me. That's what he's getting at there. So with the New Testament, this is the top of page three, the New Testament all throughout confirms the experience that Jesus promised his disciples. The early church faced a lot of opposition, a lot of hardship as they sought to proclaim the gospel in the world. Paul says this to Timothy in his second letter, chapter three, verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Somebody say all. All, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. First Peter 4, beloved, don't be surprised. Stop for a second. What does that make you believe? That when it happens, you're going to be surprised by it. You're going to be surprised. When this happens, it's going to catch you off guard. Even when Jesus told you beforehand, hey, this is what it's going to be like. It happens. Peter goes, hey, hey, don't be surprised. 
which means they were surprised. They were alarmed. They were overwhelmed. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Man, this is so odd. Why is this happening? I can't make sense of it. Peter's going, hey, beloved, do you remember what our master said? Do you remember what the master said? He told us this is what it would be like. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. This is how we can understand it. Pursuing faithful mission is the call to go in the world, give witness to the gospel of Jesus, and this will appear foolish to those who are dead in sin. So Jesus lays this out. This is kind of the theological underpinning of what he's getting at. He's saying there will be opposition as you go and proclaim the truth to the world there will be opposition, reviling, insults because of this. No, they hated me first. Know that you are not of the world. Know these things. It shapes their expectation. What Jesus then does, I'm going to jump ahead to 16, 1 to 4. What Jesus does at the end of this section, is he takes that theological reality and he shows the disciples what that's going to look like in their life and he tells them why he's telling them. He says, here's why I'm telling you all of this stuff. Let me just give you the heads up. And I think I want us to like drill into this. Jesus tells us why he tells these things to us. They're necessary because living through such opposition will be different and more difficult than simply hearing about it. Look at 16 verse 1. Why does Jesus do this? I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. What does that imply? It implies that this is going to be way harder and way more difficult than just hearing about it. Right When he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room and they've just shared this meal together, he's just washed their feet. They're experiencing the joy of communion with him and he's making these promises like, hey, there's gonna be a day really quickly where I'm gonna send the spirit and you're gonna be in me and I'm gonna be in you just like I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. This is what it's gonna be like. Stay in me, stay united to me. We're going to be one just like I'm one with the Father. And they're like leaned in and dialed. Then he goes, And the world is going to hate you. And in that moment, they do not have the capacity to imagine what that will be like when it happens. Just like you and me right now, sitting in this room, we can say it, right? We can hear the truth of it. We can amen the truth of it. We can understand the truth of it. It's way more difficult, way different than we expect when we hear it. And Jesus says, that's why I'm telling you. So that when it happens, you do not fall away. Jesus tells them there's something about the nature of walking through these kind of hardships that has the potential to drive them to the point of falling away. Jesus says this is to keep you. Here, Jesus uses this word, falling away, that throughout the New Testament gets translated different ways. Sometimes it gets translated offended. Sometimes it gets translated stumbling. 
It's actually where we get the idea of being scandalized from. It's, it's, I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, you aren't scandalized by them. You're not offended. You're not embittered. You don't draw back because they're more difficult than what you expected them to be. The potential for offense is very high when the reality of discipleship looks different from our expectations. All of us experience this at different places in our life, right? We would like to believe that we, jo- we are joined to Jesus by faith. We saw this last week when we talked about pruning, right? We think internally it's just going to be all better, right? Like we're going to get better. It's going to be up and to the right and lots of improvement and it's going to feel like we're just moving along. That's what we would like it to be. And then the reality of it is drastically different. The vine dresser comes through and cuts off branches and prunes and disciplines and brings struggle and, and difficulty. It happens the same way in our witness, right? We would like to imagine we join ourselves to Jesus by faith. He saves us. He washes us. He gives us his mission. And it's all successful from there. All success. We share and people like weep, run to the altar, fall before God. Jesus says it's going to actually be a lot harder than that. There will be a lot of difficulty, a lot of hardship, and the hardest place in the Christian life is the place where when we infuse expectations into discipleship and then reality is different than that. That has the potential for offense. We see this in the scripture. Look at Matthew 11. John the Baptist experienced this. John the Baptist, John the Baptist jumps for joy in his mom's womb because of Jesus coming, uh, Mary coming with Elizabeth, right? John the Baptist gets the word from God. You'll know the Messiah when you see the spirit descend upon him and rest on him. And it happens, right? His cousin comes up, he baptizes him, comes out of the water. The dove of the spirit descends upon him. The heavens are torn open. This is my son, the one whom I love. John's like, this is the guy. I told you the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And then he ends up in a prison. Wait, 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 wait. The Messiah is coming to overthrow the Romans. He's coming to liberate us. He's coming to save us. He's coming to bring and restore the people of God to their rightful place, to take the Romans and overthrow them. And I'm in a Roman prison. What in the world is going on? John sends some disciples to Jesus. Hey, are you really the guy? Did we read this right? John's lived through some amazing things. He's seen some unbelievable things. And John, at this point of expectation and reality, is faced with something. And Jesus says these words, which I think are profound for us. As we come to difficult truths like this, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. 
Now, offended there, if you want to know, is the same word falling away in John 16, 1. Scandalized. Blessed is the one that doesn't stumble because of me. Blessed is the one that doesn't fall away because of me. They're all related together. What Jesus is saying is, blessed is the one who in the midst of the place where your reality does not match the expectations of what you believed your life in God was going to be like, blessed is the one in that moment who does not draw back an offense. There's a blessing there. Jesus desires that those who follow him will not experience a troubled heart as they walk through these difficult seasons of discipleship. He then demonstrates that the opposition will come from those who believe they are offering a service to God. This is 16.2. I think Jesus says this for two reasons to the disciples. Number one, I think he wants them to understand that the opposition is actually going to come from people they didn't expect. I think... Jesus is saying, hey, it would be easy to expect that it's going to be the Gentiles, the pagans, the Romans. They're going to be the ones that do this. And he says, it's actually going to be religious leaders in your, in your day. There's going to be a time when people think they're offering a service to God by doing what they're doing. He wants to, again, shape their minds so they're not offended when it happens. Hey, it's going to come from places you don't imagine. It's going to come in ways that you wouldn't expect. But the second thing that I think he's doing here by shaping what's going on in their hearts, he goes, hey, there's, this is what they believe they're doing. There's a zeal there. There's a blindness there. There's a, their, their motive is to run after and try to serve God. I think one of the reasons he says this is so that when his disciples experience it, they can actually walk forward with compassion in the midst of it and do like Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus has called his disciples all throughout. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them. Jesus is not seeking to set up here this kind of like haughty, proud disciple group that when they experience it, they push back with the same kind of force. He wants them to be aware so that when it happens, their response can be trained in compassion, in love, in grace, where they, their first response in the midst of that is to bless, to do good, to pray for, not to fight against. Because that's what Jesus has called them to. Because that's what the master did. The servant isn't greater than the master. So when we experience opposition, hardship, hatred, reviling, insult, slander, all of those things, our response is called to be the same as the master who did not revile in return, who did not seek to destroy by force. He didn't fight. He didn't push back. He submitted himself to God and entrusted himself. That's what we see through the scriptures. But Jesus gives them in this a promise 
there's going to be opposition. You're going to experience this. Fidelity to my truth, this is what it will be like. And it's going to happen in these ways. Sandwiched in between that is this beautiful promise in verse 26 and 27. He promises us that we're not going to do it alone. We're not going to do it alone. How many of you, when I talk about this, you feel insufficient for such things? Yes. I feel insufficient for such things. Paul felt insufficient for such things. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, as, we, as he talks about being the fragrance of Jesus, some to death, some to life. In every place, we're led out as the processional of Christ. We're a fragrance. Some experience the fragrance like death, like a putrid death, and some experience it like an aroma of life. And he asks the question, who's sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient for such things? Who has the ability to, in the midst of that, stand and move forward and continue to bear witness? None of us. But the promise is that you will not be alone. Verse 26, the helper comes. The one whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me and you will bear witness about me. This is a beautiful promise. Like even as we think about opening our mouths or proclaiming or being a witness to the good news of Jesus, we have help. We're not alone. We are sent the very spirit of God who is God himself to dwell with us, to empower us, to strengthen us, and to enable us. And hey, here's the thing. You don't even have to perfectly say it. It's not like you can come up with some way that if you just said it right, or you said it winsome enough, or you said it clear enough, or you said it like uh, beautifully enough, it would convince someone else. You have no power to do that. The spirit of truth has to come and bear witness. That's what we get here. So all we do is by faith remain joined to Christ, abiding in him like a branch in a vine. And we go in weak, immature, consistent obedience to try to live as a witness to his glory in the world. And he promises that the helper will come and the helper will bear witness. The helper will bear witness. The Spirit of God loves to bear witness to the Son of God. He loves to do it. And he uses weak and broken vessels like us as the treasure that is, or the the pots that are broken in which the treasure lies. And so my desire for us this morning, the call for us this morning, is to set our hearts Toward fidelity to Jesus, fidelity to his person, who he is, remaining in abiding, trusting, obedient union with him, and in that place to live as his witnesses in the world, to live as his witnesses in the world. 
And that might mean looking at places where, where we're afraid, places where, we're, where we perceive our weakness very intensely, and asking him for strength and grace to step out and to give witness to his truth. But doing so knowing that as we walk that way, there will be hardship, there will be opposition, there will be difficulty, there will be reviling, there will be insults, there will be false accusations. But Jesus invites us into seeing that as a picture of what it means to walk with him. He actually says there is a joy there to be experienced. There is a joy there. We must set our hearts to remain faithful to biblical truth, the witness of Christ Jesus, no matter what the cost is. The world is said to be in opposition to the values, the truths, the practices, the pursuits that give primary orientation to our faith. Let us not be swayed by temptation to succumb to giving up fidelity to God's word, the truth of the gospel, or the foundation of our faith in, in, in the places where we experience that. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're just going to respond to the Lord for just a moment. I'm going to pray over us and then we'll come to the table together. God, here we are. We belong to you. We are yours. Holy Spirit, I want to ask right now in this room, I want to ask for your ministry to us. Would you come as the helper and help us? I ask in places where people in this room are experiencing uh, the temptation to draw back, whether it is through fear of opposition or it is the experience of opposition. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and help right now. Would you remind us of the truth? That's what one of the things you do, Jesus says in this, in this passage, you remind us of the things that Jesus said. And you make them alive to us. Would you come and remind us? Remind us. Speak to us right now. God, I ask you in the places where we are maybe weary or on the, on the brink of offense, maybe places where our, the reality of our life walking with you doesn't match up with, with what we always expected. And in that place, we feel the temptation to offense. We feel the temptation to draw back or the temptation of bitterness or to be scandalized in that place. Spirit of God, I ask for grace in this room right now grace in this room, God, to, to, to trust in you, to look to you again, Jesus, to remember your goodness, to remember your strength, your, your grace, 
God, would you fill us? Fill us. As we come to the table this morning, I want to do so as those who have nothing to boast in. Nothing to boast in but Christ. Even, even remembering the, the word that Jesus said, you're not of the world because I chose you. I chose you. I plucked you out like a brand out of the fire. As we come to the table, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that it's only because of his life, his death, his resurrection, that we have hope of life with God, of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, that we were those who were of the world running headlong in rebellion against him. And he saved us. He saved us, not by our own merit, not by our own value, not by our own works, but because of Jesus alone. How we celebrate communion here. If you believe that, if your faith is in Jesus and in Jesus alone, we want to invite you to come and celebrate this with us. We take a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. You have uh, wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in front, in the middle, in the balconies, and we've got a gluten-free to my right over here. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we want to ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is a signifier of the reality of a life surrendered to Jesus. So this meal doesn't afford you anything. It doesn't save you. It doesn't um, give you standing before God. Only Jesus alone can do that. Faith in him because of his work. We would invite you to stay in your seat and maybe pray this morning. We have cards in the seat backs in front of you with a couple prayers on it if you want to know what it might sound like to pray this morning. But stay in your seat. We're really glad you're here. But for those of, of, of us who are receiving, we'll come. Servers, you can come forward now. And uh, we'll respond by coming and taking communion, by singing. And as always, we have ministers throughout the sanctuary who would love to pray with and for you for anything uh, that you need. If there's places where God's stirring something in your heart and you're longing for more of his grace, we'd love to stand with you and ask for the spirit to empower you, to minister to you. If there's places where you uh, need healing, we'd love to ask the Lord to move. Uh, but if you, if you need prayer, they'll be throughout the sanctuary as well. And we'll respond, come forward when you're ready, and we'll sing together.